You should never meet your heroes, but you can phone them. Last week I phoned Mick Jackson. Mick Jackson is the director of Threads. Enough said. Let's begin. Threads doesn't need an introduction. If you're listening to this podcast, then you already know it. You might not have been brave enough to actually watch it yet, as some listeners have confessed to me, but you will certainly know it. You'll also know that I'm writing a book about our preparations for nuclear war, and as part of the research for the BBC chapter, I emailed Mick Jackson's agent and asked if I might interview him. I was almost embarrassed in doing so, thinking he won't have time for a pipsqueak like me. But he said yes, for which I'm obviously very grateful. But I must also be selfish and keep some of our interview back for my book, which will be out next year. But I spoke to Mr Jackson for over an hour, so we have plenty of material, and he agreed that I could use it and create a podcast episode. I told him, of course, how obsessed most of my listeners are with this film, and I told him that I saw it when I was three, and that it has effectively shaped my whole life. The reason I have this podcast, the reason I have a book deal, the reason I have a career, well, I can trace it all back to Mick Jackson's brilliant film. He's now living in LA, and I was phoning him on my poxy mobile, so the sound quality might not be great, I've done my best to spruce it up in editing. Although I suspect, if you're like me, you'd listen to Mick Jackson talk about threads, even if it was being broadcast underwater, during a storm, with a brass band passing by. And yes, even with a siren going off. I began by asking him the obvious question. Why nuclear war? What sparked your interest? as a young director at the BBC, in making a nuclear war film. Why did I get interested in nuclear war? In 1980s, you couldn't help, uh, as a thinking person, be concerned about the state of the world. Um, I had been you know, worried since I was a student at uh, Southampton in the 1960s. I thought that the Cuban Missile Crisis was going to lead to the end of civilization. But, you know, even worse than that was when you get into the 80s. The Cold War, it's probably the worst since the 1960s. Just listing the things that, that kind of provoked anxiety. There was this terrible arms race between uh, the Soviets and, and the West. The, the Russians had shot down a, a Korean airliner that invaded Afghanistan. Um, Reagan was being very warlike and 
calling the Soviet Union an evil empire. And then there was his Star Wars program, a strategic defense initiative that promised that you know, they could get around any Soviet attack by just putting up this iron shield over the U.S. So anybody who thought about it um, was worried about it. The thing that occurred to me is that everybody thought about it, but nobody knew anything about it. That really dates back to uh, the end of World War II, when um, Churchill was briefly prime minister again, and he um, issued an order that, that nobody should talk about nuclear war or make documentaries about it. And that was followed by the BBC and, and subsequently other broadcasting organizations through the Attlee era and, and, and beyond that, until Peter Watkins decided to make the war game. You know, nobody talked about it. Nobody knew about it. And more importantly to me in, in you know, what happened with, with Threads, and just going back to a precursor of Threads, which you know about, the Guide, uh, guide to Armageddon, nobody had any way of thinking about it. You know, it's kind of a, a cliched phrase to say that nuclear war is unthinkable. It's unthinkable because you don't know what to think. You don't have any facts and you don't have any images in your head. You just have a sense of dread. And that's really not helpful to any kind of conversation. So I thought, you know, it's the 1980s. Here am I in my second marriage talking about raising a family. And what am I going to bring children into? A world in which the future is, you know, a few minutes away from destruction. You heard Mick Jackson refer there to A Precursor to Threads, which was a programme called A Guide to Armageddon. He explains that he was making some short, popular science programmes at the time for the BBC, this is the early 80s, covering relatively light topics like uh, futurology and why accidents happen. And the thought occurred that he might give nuclear weapons the same treatment. A short, Popular science look at the nuclear bomb and its physical effects. What would a nuclear explosion do to a city, to a body, to the flesh of the face? In taking the idea to the BBC, he was clear that the programme would be non-political. Now, the reason he was extremely clear to his bosses that his proposed guide to Armageddon would be strictly non-political and based wholly on science and fact and the laws of physics, is because of the huge controversy in the 1960s at the BBC over the treatment of the war game. And we've discussed that, of course, in previous episodes. In a nutshell, for new listeners, a brilliant drama documentary about nuclear war was made by Peter Watkins, and, as listeners will already know, the BBC refused to show it. It was too horrifying, they said, too dangerous, too risky, too truthful, you might say. And the Home Office were getting quite fretful. I'm keeping a lot of what Mick Jackson said about the war game back from my book, as I said earlier, being selfish. But um, I can say that he saw this proposed guide to Armageddon programme as a way of breaking the ice. The BBC have been very quiet on nuclear war ever since that scandal in the 60s. So maybe making this programme would be a way back in. It would be a way of dipping your toe in the water. Make something which is purely scientific, and so no one in it is trying to make an argument about civil defence or about disarmament. It's just facts. It's just science. Here's Mick Jackson again. It's completely non-political. It relies only on science, and it's like a consumer's guide, like a witch report, what fallout does us. That was the idea. The logic of that being, 
you can state scientific facts and you can actually make it clear that you are not proselytizing. It's just the laws of physics. This is what happens. If you are doing a consumer's test, let's say, on how you can protect yourself from nuclear war, then you have to show what it is that you're protecting yourself against. And that was the idea of the, the half-hour program. Basically, you know, narrated by Ludwig Kennedy, this is what a nuclear weapon will do. You know, blast, fire, heat, radiation, and so on. And this is how, by spending various amounts of money, you can protect yourself. Of course, if you show what nuclear weapons do, it is going to be horrific. So I uh, used metaphors. Um, for example, when showing the effects of flying glass, I um, cut from a still photograph of an old woman's face to a slow motion shot of flying glass projected out of pumpkin. They obviously make that connection. This is what flying glass will do to a face. So it's very shocking, but it is scientific. It's a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card for the BBC. I, I mentioned this to my superiors and said, I want to do this completely non-political movie. So I was, you know, this was passed up to the hierarchy of the BBC. Yeah, word came down. Well, okay, <laughs> go and do it. Don't make any noise about it, and we'll look at it and what you've got. Suppose, a mile above the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, on a clear morning, a single one megaton weapon explodes. This film is about what happens to a city, any city, underneath such an explosion. Most of us live in cities. How effectively could we shelter from a nuclear weapon? Would we survive its three main effects? At the instant of detonation, the temperature of a nuclear fireball is 20 million degrees, as hot as the center of the sun. This is the first effect, a pulse of intense heat and light. Across large areas of central London, people and objects burst into flames, melt or char. clip there from the very eerie opening segment of A Guide to Armageddon. And as Mick Jackson explains here, this little documentary, carefully scientific, carefully non-political, went on to pave the way for threads. So there was a studio discussion after the movie went out, chaired by Ludwig Kennedy, and everybody agreed, well, this is actually quite a good you know, public service that the BBC has done here. It's kind of it's socially responsible, it's not political, but it is very informative. So that was a great surprise to everybody and a very pleasant surprise. The earth didn't open and swallow everybody up. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, in the meantime, for all, all the research that I've done for that, that small half-hour documentary, I realized that what I showed, sides of beef um, melting in the shop window of a butcher and, and flying glass shredding a pumpkin. That was about the physical effects, but what I, I couldn't cover in a documentary was the psychological effects. And I knew from research by people like uh, Robert J. Lifton, who had studied the, the effects of the explosions in, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima afterwards, and the effect on the survivors, that the psychological effects and the societal effects were much, much greater than any physical damage. And you couldn't really show that in a documentary but you could show that with a drama. 
So um, I prepared for that with the, the BBC's um, agreement. They didn't suggest this. I, I suggested the guy to Armageddon, and I said to them, look, we got away with that. There wasn't you know, a great drama and, and, and crisis and, and any of that. What I'd like to do is to go further into the subject, to deeply research, do a, a, a dramatized documentary. And they said, well, go with our limited blessing. <laughs> go go do your research and then come back and we'll talk about it. So Mick Jackson went off and did a couple of years of hard research. He says he made himself into an expert on nuclear war. But now he needed a writer. He would bring the facts, but who would create his characters? I read all this stuff, I talked to all these people. I thought, okay, I know the facts now. What I want to do is take on someone who doesn't know those facts to write a screenplay involving ordinary people who don't know any of this stuff, and all of this stuff will happen to them. And I want someone who knows about people. So my immediate thought, I, I had... No other, I can tell you, was Barry Hines. I loved Barry Hines' work, particularly with Ken Loach. Yes. And I thought, if anybody knows about you know, people and, and believable people who are just ordinary people and they're not, nothing special about them, that's, that's Barry. So I went to him with this idea. Look, you and I will come up with a scenario. You'll write it. And, and um, then I will subject these people almost sadistically what nuclear weapons can do and we came up with this idea that the shape of a life it would begin with an act of conception you know it's that fumbling and, and heavy patting in the car as a result of which there would be a birth and that birth would happen in the midst of a nuclear war and then at the end of that 13 years later there would be another conception a rape of her daughter and that would end in what a birth you're not really sure of the end. what it is that's been born like that rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem. So that was the idea. And um, I know that that, uh, Barry was very kind of conflicted about it, and you may have read about this, um, that it was a very uh, tempestuous relationship working on the film. He wrote this screenplay, and then I insisted on putting um, these factual uh, interventions, uh, just giving facts through the voice of Paul Vaughan, who was then the narrator on the horizon scientific program. And he said, well, what place does this have in a drama? And I said, well, it isn't a drama. This isn't a drama. This isn't a documentary. This isn't anything except what it is. The one-off thing. And the more oddball it is, the more it will stick in people's memory. And he, he you know, fought that and fought that and we had violent rows. It was good creative um, discussion. And the fact that it ended up um, with this, not voice of God, um, but the voice of the laws of physics saying, at this point, the temperature is so-and-so, and at this point, your flesh melts, and whatever. And you see these poor people who have no knowledge of that just go through the events, and what happens to them is going to be devastating. I started a Twitter campaign a couple of years ago to ask the BBC to please show threads again. And I've also organised a mass viewing of the film, where we all watched it at the same time, and shared her thoughts over Twitter and Facebook. Despite these small efforts, uh, the BBC haven't shown it again. According to their own website, it has only been shown three times. Three times since its creation. 
three times for one of the best things they've ever broadcast. So we talked about this and Mick made the excellent point that the film can't really age or get outdated because nuclear weapons and the dreadful things they would do to us remain exactly the same as they were back in 1983. None of that has changed uh, in the years since I made threads and now. It's the law of physics. Nuclear weapons will always do those things to people. I mean, you look at the film now and, and it has a very dated quality to it made in 1984. There's no CNN, there's no cell phones, there's no internet, there's no anything. And everybody looks like, you know, they're out of another age. Clothes and everything, haircuts. But the moment a nuclear weapon drops anywhere near you in, in 2021, whether you live in Sheffield or in Seattle or in Seoul or anywhere in the world, your life will be changed forever in the same way as it's changed in this film. So that's why I think you know, what you're doing with saying organizing mass viewing, saying trans- transmit it again, air it again, um, actually answers that, that this isn't a film about history, this is a film about now. I looked up this morning uh, the atomic clock, because you make a reference uh, to that in you know, Two Minutes to Midnight, I think, Times of Through Substance piece, which I, I thought was excellent. It is no longer Two Minutes to Midnight, it's, it's gone down to 100 seconds which is the worst it has ever been since 1947. That's why this film, I think, has some relevance now. You know, nuclear weapons still do all the horrible stuff that we show, and we're now closer to it than ever. So I remember when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk, particularly in the 80s, particularly in the, the Reagan administration, about nuclear war being something you could, you could control and maybe even win. They were talking about things like, you know, a bloody nose strike, and that will teach them, and then they won't dare to respond, uh, that sort of thing. And I, knowing all the stuff I knew, I, I thought, well, if you had any idea in your head about what a nuclear weapon would do, you wouldn't say stuff like this. You particularly, you know, under the, the Trump, you, you wouldn't say um, fire and fury, phrases like that, which I know he used in, in terms of North Korea. Fire and fury like there was never known. Someone said to me once, somebody who worked on the, uh, the uh, Manhattan Project, I wish I could take some of these politicians out to the desert, as I could before 1963 when they had, you know, in the Nevada desert, uh, nuclear tests. And you could watch them and they sent out troops so they could see the effect on the troops of the blast and fire and stuff. And if you took these so-called experts and strategists out to the middle of the desert, made them strip down to their underwear and watch a nuclear blast, a nuclear test, so they could feel the blistering heat burned backwards by the shockwave where it hit them, they would no longer be talking about winnable nuclear water. Now, given the amount of time and research Mick Jackson put into threads, and given his noble reasons for wanting to make the film, would you be surprised to hear he was willing to pack it all in? To just pull the project in its very earliest stages, just tell the BBC it's off. Indeed he was. Whilst he was working on the earliest stages of Threads, before filming had begun, he heard news from across the Atlantic. The American channel, ABC, were doing a nuclear war film. They were making, yes, the day after. 
And Mick thought, oh well, if they do a good job, if they do it well, if they do it right, then I'll pack it in. Well, he didn't pack it in. So let's hear his thoughts on The Day After, a film which some people still insist on calling the American version of Threads. Or worse, calling Threads the British equivalent of The Day After. I don't think the two films should even be mentioned in the same sentence. But let's hear more from Mick. Can I say a little thing uh, about The Day After? Oh, yes, please. This is the, the big budget version. In 1983, I got word that ABC was doing this version of Nuclear War. And I thought, oh God, I'm into pre-production on threads. Mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to start shooting, but I haven't started shooting. Please don't let them blow this. Don't let this become another TV uh, disaster movie and start a new genre. Last thing I want is to make a genre of nuclear war films. If I can prevent that by doing something and doing it so shocking that it does everything it needs to do and never is repeated again, then I will have done good. But if I find out they're going to do it, I won't do that because it shouldn't be done twice. So mm -hmm. I was prepared to pull threads before shooting it. I could have done that because BBC wasn't telling me to do it. I was saying, I want to do this and I got permission from the BBC to do it. If I had said, look, I no longer don't want to do this because ABC is doing it, let's stop. They would have said, okay, it's your choice. I saw the day after. They thought, oh no, they did blow it. <laughs> now, I, I discovered afterwards that Nick Meyer, who was the director, had wanted to do, had started out wanting to do everything I wanted to do with threats, and then had run into corporate bureaucracy at ABC and got, the whole thing got watered down and changed. And mm. at one point, he, he retired, he resigned from the project, and then was brought back again. Everything I, I thought you shouldn't do with it. You shouldn't make it a disaster movie. You shouldn't have a star. You shouldn't have an enormous budget. You shouldn't have state-of-the-art special effects and a musical score and all of that stuff. They did. I mean, I when I give talks, I haven't for several years, but when I give talks about threads, I said, just look at two sequences, okay? one in the day after and one in threads. The sequence in the hospital. In the hospital... The lights are on. It's clean. Someone's being wheeled in on a gurney, and Jason Robards is being very noble. And in threads, their hospital is overrun in Sheffield. There's blood and shit on the floor, and nobody has any any tools to be a doctor with. There's no no power. There's no water. There's no instruments. There's no anaesthetic. There's no medications. All you can do is you know put salt in, in, in water and try and make some sort of, uh, kind of disinfectant. Mm -hmm. And if someone's got a limb that you need to amputate, you amputate it with no anesthetic. And that's the difference between you being realistic about the effects of nuclear war and being... There was one show I, I hated. I know um, Nick Meyer did a, did a valiant job and was beat down in the end, but there's a shot in the day after where the the camera is on a camera crane, that's an arm that goes up in the air, so the shot kind of rises above something. But as as the, the, the shot rises, you realize it's uh, um, a survivor, you know, a casualty center, and more and more people are, are revealed lying on the floor with blankets over them. And it's a very impressive shot, and it's actually sort of homage to a similar shot in Gone with the Wind. And I was furious when I saw that. I thought, this is important. 
bloody stuff. This is no place to do cinematic homages. That out of place here. It's an inappropriate genre to make a TV disaster movie in the American style with the American standards and practices of television companies. Not big enough to hold this this message. So that that's why I said, okay, well, I think they they they've blown it. Yes, it's had a great splurge, but I want to tell the real story and try to do that in the threads. And having told it once, I don't want anybody to tell it again. Not through ownership, but just because you know. The more you, you show, show another version of it, a remake of it, the more you kind of inure yourself to it. We went on to speak of the haunting, stunning, horrifying images that we see in Threads. My favourite is the melting milk bottles on the doorstep. That's the image I remember as a three-year-old. The traffic warden's face, the bandaged traffic warden, I'm sure he haunts a lot of people. There's, of course, the, the bike caught in the tree, which has been thrown there, of course, after the explosion. The burning teddy bear, the burning E.T., the retching, writhing cats. The film is packed with these incredible images, which you only see for a for a second, but which, of course, stay with you. Uh, and Mick Jackson uh, discuss another one, the burning hand, which emerges from the rubble. I'll let him describe that for us. Those are all based on facts, you know, based on you know, photos of... Uh, bodies after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and this odd phenomenon that there would be a hand sticking out from the rubble and as the, the body fat burned off there'd be a little flame like a sort of candelabra from each finger. That's in there, that's in there. There would be people blown on their bikes into trees yeah. and they'd be on fire. Show that, show that. So um, cumulatively I think it's all leading up to that climax where you have this, even if you're not aware of it, cycle of conception and pregnancy and birth. That cycle is repeated in the next generation, but instead of a birth, you have no idea mm-hmm. on that freeze at the end of the film, what has been given birth to. I, I've been reading pieces you know, from my file, and, and your experience of watching as a kid features in a lot of things. There's a piece by Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian about watching it you in his younger days having to look away from the screen at that moment because mm. he didn't know what to cut to. And Paul Whitelaw in the Scotsman saying that he watched it peeking through an open door. Yeah. So it does have an effect, and I think it has a continuing effect. And um, I'm glad for my daughter that I made it. Um, and if it can be of further use in, in the conversation, I'm, I'm proud of it. We went on to talk about the... Uh makeup effects, which all of course had to be done in a very low budget. Mick had explained earlier that the day after's budget was seven million dollars, whereas his with threads was two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So they had to make do with what they had. How very British. Uh, rice krispies and tomato sauce were used to recreate some of the wounds. And again with Ruth when she delivers her baby and has to bite through the umbilical cord, that big stretchy purple tube she bites into was actually licorice. It was made um, at Mick Jackson's request by the good people at Bassett's Licorice Factory. And when he phoned them and asked if they could do him an umbilical cord, they said, sure. What colour? And he said, umbilical cord colour, I suppose. (laughs) So we talked of the makeup effects. 
And then he had something to say about the extras and the Sheffield City Council. So let's hear what Mick has to say about them. We held a screening um, for the, those extras who'd um, been bullied into being in counting. <laughs> um, I just want to say a word about that if, if you're not running out of time. No, no, that's fine. I decided to set this in Sheffield, not in somewhere like London, but it, I use the phrase, and it's an awful pun, it's bang in the middle. It's actually <laughs> bang in the middle of, of the land mapping. At a place that is a, you know, uh, conceivably a target because of rail connections, it's steel industry, which it still had at that time, and, and other you know, chemical factories, and, and also the, the proximity of um, uh, the RAF base and NATO base. So I made it in Sheffield, and uh, I knew that the city council there had an anti-nuclear bias. So I tried to protect myself from that, from uh, allegations of being you know, biased and doing propaganda for CND, by saying, I'm going to do this film. Um, I'll show you a guide to Armageddon, so you see I'm serious about this. I will not show you the script for this, and nor will I take any input from you on this. But I'll only tell you I will try and make it truthful honest, and if you could help us in you know, putting out the word that we're looking for extras to be in crowd scenes, that would be wonderful. And they trusted me, I'm, I'm happy to say. And we, so we, have, we threw this um, screening um, for the people who'd been in it, who happily, you know, uh, done crowds listening to a speaker protesting before the attack happens or being people fleeing during the nuclear winter into the countryside and so on. And they all happily did that, and they, they knew what we'd done in those scenes. But actually seeing the movie, people were crying all about it. People who'd been in the film, seeing their own city apparently reduced to ruins and seeing what happened to people. They hadn't made that link between what they were doing when the camera was running, small part of the film, to the overall thing. And I think seeing it all put together, it was just harrowing to see them weeping. Three cheers then for all the brave extras. I had plenty more material, but I, of course, I must keep some good stuff for my book after all. So a thousand thanks to Mick Jackson for speaking to me, and of course for making this brilliant film. I mentioned on Twitter that I had an unopened Blu-ray of threads to give away to those who retweeted my podcast link, and the winner is Jamie McTrusty. Jamie, I will get in touch about sending this to you, but if I forget, please do remind me. And if you enjoy my podcast, please consider supporting it with a donation each month. You can choose the amount, and it can be as little as £1. If every listener gave £1, well, I'd be off to Mexico. Actually, no, I wouldn't. I'd still be here doing my nuclear work, except I'd have better hair and more books. So if you want to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember, you can find me on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or on Twitter under Julie A. McDowell. So thank you all for listening. Please do seek out Threads if you haven't seen it. You can buy it now on DVD, Blu-ray. It's out there. If you've got the money, please do get a copy and spread the word about this magnificent film. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you again to Mick Jackson. I'll be back next Monday with another episode.